following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 15, The Task of the Ministry. Our text, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 4. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. The task of the ministry. Last week, you remember, we were dealing with the word of reconciliation. This tremendous message that God has given us concerning the act of God in Christ by which he's made possible the reconciling of the world to himself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing to them their trespasses. The central message of our Christian faith, a message the world desperately needs, with all the schism and hatred and war and strife, what greater word than the word reconciliation? And it's committed to the church of Jesus Christ to make this word known throughout the world and to bring men and women, first of all, into reconciliation with God and then with one another. Now, the word of reconciliation inevitably leads to the work of reconciliation. The truth of the ministry is indissolubly linked with the task of the ministry. So in the closing section of this particular part of the epistle, Paul deals with one of the most moving approaches to this task of the ministry you'll find anywhere in the Word of God, and that will particularly be emphasized next Sunday morning, God willing. But for today, we're going to consider three aspects of these ten, ten verses under the general title of the task of the ministry. And the first one, will you notice, please, is what we're calling the dignity of our task. The dignity of our task. Verses 1 and again 4. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. And then verse 4, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. The dignity of our task. In these words, the apostle rescues the concept of Christian service from the low level of human thinking and elevates it to the place where it belongs. By employing two figures of speech, Paul describes the dignity of our ministry as a holy partnership. And secondly, as a holy stewardship. First of all, a holy partnership, the dignity of our task. Look at that verse one again. We then as workers together with him, literally the Greek reads, we then as fellow workers or co-workers, co-workers. Without doubt, Paul is recalling his previous letter where he reminds the Christian believers, you remember in that third chapter of 1 Corinthians, that we are laborers together with God. Laborers together with God. Or again, laborers or co-workers together with God. Until we grasp this lofty idea of Christian service, we shall never appreciate the dignity of our task. According to the teaching of this verse, the work of evangelism is a holy partnership in which we cooperate with God. And the reason for that is that God ever takes the initiative. And in response to his effectual call, we cooperate with God in a holy partnership. He's ever and always taken the initiative, even 
while his son was here upon earth. It was God the Father who took the initiative, for we read, my Father worketh hitherto, and I work. That's a statement of Jehovah's servant. My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. And Paul has just reminded us in the preceding paragraph that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. As we saw last week, the initiative was not with man. The initiative was not even with Christ, the Son. The initiative was with God. God took the initiative and broke into human history when man had spoiled the picture, when man had fallen to the voice of personified sin. God broke through. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And he's carrying that thought right over to what we call chapter 6. God is still moving. God is still moving. And he calls us to cooperate with him. What a task. What a dignity. What a privilege. This work of reconciliation is always viewed in Scripture, as we saw last week, as final and continual, as initial and perpetuating. There is an aspect of it which is never to be repeated. What God did in Christ on the cross is finished. The last word our Savior uttered at Calvary was the word from which we get that great idea of dedication. When he cried, it is finished, he cried, accomplished, or more literally, dedicated. Nothing more could be added to it, and certainly nothing subtracted from it. The old theologians used to speak of it as the finished work of Christ. And I repeat, as the verb illustrates in chapter 5, that there is a finished, completed, initial act of reconciliation, which will never be repeated. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And when he cried, finished, accomplished, dedicated, the work was finished, accomplished, dedicated. But equally clear is the fact that God is continuing his work of reconciliation by calling men and women to himself through the preaching of the gospel. To effect this task, he has called us into this holy partnership as his ambassadors and representatives. Oh, may the dignity, may the dignity of this task grip our hearts here this morning. You young people here, you older folks, has it ever occurred to you that God Almighty, the ineffable one, the eternal one, the transcendent one, the all-loving, all-wise, all-powerful God, he who can't look upon iniquity, he who lives in that cloudless light of purity, God! has called us to cooperate with him in the task of winning men and women to Jesus Christ. Oh, the wonder of it has just gripped my soul. Some of us can think of much lesser partnerships. There came a day in your life, young married husband, when you stood at the altar of God and you accepted vows in the name of God and you said, I take this woman to be my lawful wedded wife. Young woman, you remember that day when you said, I take this man to be my lawful wedded wife. And from heaven, you were made one flesh. You came into a partnership. God have mercy upon you if you can say what I can say here this morning, that the supreme wonder of marriage is the sheer dignity of this holy partnership. There's a holy partnership in marriage, the, matrim the matrimonial partnership, the matrimonial partnership. And any young man who's worth his salt thinks of nothing higher than to present his wife 
and to say, this is my wife. I have pleasure in introducing my wife. There are ecclesiastical partnerships, associations into which men are brought at times in which we rejoice in the privilege of being set aside for the work of God. There are professional partnerships, and there isn't an executive year in a law firm. There isn't an executive year in some big commercial firm. There isn't someone here who's a doctor or a lawyer or a banker in the professional world who doesn't stand back in a measure and say, I'm glad I'm associated with this. This has given me my status. This has given me my dignity. I stand as a man in all the virtue of what that firm represents, and it's a dignified status. But I want to say very clearly and simply that all those relationships and partnerships fade into absolute insignificance compared with this partnership by which I can say I am a fellow worker with God. God is my partner, the dignity of our task. But alongside of that is this other figure of speech mentioned in verse 4. Not only a holy partnership, but notice a holy stewardship. A holy stewardship. We are ministers of God. Hold on that word for a moment. Ministers of God. Ministers of God. The word in the Greek means servants, attendants, deacons, and presupposes submission and obedience to a master. And I want to say that the dignity of our task is that we are ministers of God ministers of God. There came a moment in our lives where voluntarily in the light of Calvary and because of all Jesus did for us and because of his reconciling grace, we knelt at the cross and then at the throne and we said, we are ministers of God. We bring our lives in submission to the sovereignty and authority of God. He is our God and King. We're ministers of God. You see, in this work, we're not serving ourselves. We're not even serving men except in a secondary sense. As ministers, we are serving God. I'm telling you, when you get hold of that, when that grasps your mind and heart and will, you'll never have any fear. You'll never, never be worried about criticism. You'll never give a moment's thought to reputation so much as it regards your own person. When you grasp this truth, you'll never strive and struggle again. When you can stand and say, I am a minister of God. And remember that even though there is a special aspect in which certain men and women for that matter are separated for particular tasks as behind the sacred desk here or on the mission field, there's a sense also in which every single person in this gathering this morning, if you are regenerated by the Spirit of God and you are related to God, you are young or old here, male or female here, a minister of God. For the word minister is the word deacon, servant. And if you're saved at all, you're a minister of God. And I want to tell you when you know in your heart that you are a minister of God, nothing else ever matters. St. Augustine once said, if you really love God, you can do as you like, because everything else is motivated by that, and nothing matters saves God. The dignity of such a relationship should call forth the highest and best in terms of stewardship and service. For many Christians, this lofty view of serving God has been dimmed by the clouds of selfishness, insubordination, and irresponsibility. 
Such people merit the words which Marshal Peyton issued over fallen France. You remember he declared our spirit of enjoyment was stronger than our spirit of sacrifice. We wanted to have more than what we wanted to give. We tried to spare effort and we met disaster. All of us as Christians need to recapture the dignity of our task by recognizing that as fellow workers with God, we have a holy partnership. We have a holy stewardship, the dignity of our task. You can easily find out whether or not a man has learned this truth. You can easily find out whether a woman has found this truth. You can easily find out whether a teenager or a young college student has found this truth. If that truth has made the impression upon their lives that Paul reveals in this particular passage, I want to tell you this. There isn't a situation in the world. I care not how antagonistic or hostile it is. There isn't a situation in the world when you can't stand up and say, I'm a servant of God, and you don't apologize for it. I know businessmen, I know very prominent businessmen who are under the spotlight in their own circles. Everybody shakes their hand. They're considered the big brass. They strut around with an air of superiority. Why? Because they're in their own circles and they're regarded as the last word in education, in culture, and achievement in their own circles. But mention the name of Jesus and they immediately look embarrassed and shrink. Those men have never learned the dignity of the servant of God. I repeat again, there is no situation or circumstance in God's world. I cannot, there is no, there's no place in which a man who's learned this truth can't stand and with unashamed face say, I'm a servant of God. And know that that dignity overrides every other status that man can ever know here upon earth. The dignity of our task. But let's hurry on. There's something more that Paul tells us here. Not only the matter of the dignity of our task, but in the second place, notice the urgency of the task. The urgency of the task. I don't know any passage in the whole of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation which underscores the urgency of the task as these next few verses. Verses 1 and 2. We then as workers together with him beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. To the apostle Paul and to all who have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to feel, this world represents a state of emergency. Let me repeat that. This world represents, at this very hour, a state of emergency. In every generation, of course, this has been true, but I feel it's even more so as we near the end of the age. The Word of God makes it clear that the coming of the Lord draws near. The days are going to become more and more evil in the task of preaching the gospel, more and more urgent. And so we have in these verses the urgency of the task represented in terms of, first, the call of God, secondly, the need of man, and thirdly, the day of grace. Now, anybody who knows anything about preaching, and any of you who've waited on my ministry here throughout the past few years, will know this, that the note of urgency has been emphasized again and again and again. And do you know why? Because the Bible says it. The Bible underscores this matter of urgency all through, all through its exhortations. There's an urgency that throbs throughout Holy Revelation, an urgency. 
But any intelligent person here who has an eschatological view of scripture and of the destiny of men, anyone here knows what I'm talking about when I say never was that word urgency more relevant. Never was it more relevant. Urgency. And it's related here in the threefold way. The urgency of the call of God. We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Verse 1. Paul carries over the thought from the 20th verse of the previous chapter notice where God is depicted as a pleading deity. A pleading deity. God on his knees. God on his knees pleading for men and women in Christ's stead to be reconciled to himself. A pleading deity. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? That is the picture. That is the Greek force. God Almighty on his knees pleading with men. Can you imagine anything more urgent than that? If we know anything of fellowship with God, we cannot resist the call of God. Indeed, to resist the call of God, notice Paul says is to receive the grace of God in vain, with lightness, with flippancy, with irresponsibility. It is truly a solemn thought that Christian people can, in fact, frustrate the grace of God. Did you know that? There is a favorite verse of mine in Galatians 2 and 20, and many of you could quote it immediately. It goes, for I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, says Paul, I frustrate not the grace of God. If I'm indwelt by the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world and the sender to the world, and if God in Christ beseeches men to be reconciled to God, and I don't go through with what God is calling me to do, then I frustrate the grace of God. Indeed, as Pelagius puts it, he who receives the grace of God in vain is not himself a new creation. And I think we've come to a time in the life of the church throughout America where the line has to be cut right down the middle. There are thousands of religious people. There are thousands of orthodox people. There are thousands of people who've learned all their memory verses and know the Bible through and through so far as academic knowledge is concerned, but show no evidences whatsoever of the grace of God. They're now new creatures in Christ Jesus. Because Paul says here, if we have received the grace of God, we can't treat it lightly. We can't treat it in vain. We've got to respond to the grace of God, either we frustrate the grace of God. Jesus taught the same thing. He said the branches of the new vine must bear fruit. Indeed, if they fail to bear fruit, listen carefully. Men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If I claim to be a vine branch, if I claim to be a branch in a vine, and day after day, week after week, month after month, there are no grapes, no fruit. Whatever I like to claim myself to be, I'm nothing more than a dead branch waiting to be taken away and burned. Men gather them and burn them. The urgency of the call of God. But alongside of that, of course, is the urgency of the need of man. For he has said, I have heard thee in a time accepted in the day of salvation. Have I succored thee? Behold, now is the accepted time. This grammatical parenthesis is an interesting one. As you know, it's quoted from Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 8. As you'll see in your margin read readily. 
The original reference had to do with the help which God would give to his divine servant in the day when salvation would be offered to the Gentiles. And the fact of the matter is just this, that man is lost in sin and needs above everything else a savior. The greatest need in the world today, the greatest need in the world today, is not better housing, not improved conditions for living, is not even food for the poor, important as all those items are, and I'm 100% behind them. The supreme and indispensable need for the world today is salvation. When the angel announced the birth of Jesus Christ to Joseph, he declared that the infant's name would be called Jesus. Why? For he should save his people from their sins. The need of man is not primarily for a teacher, however important may be a teacher in a world of ignorance. It is not primarily for a reformer as necessary as this is in a world of disorder. It is not primarily for a benefactor as desirable as that is in a world of poverty. Man's greatest need is for a savior because man's greatest problem is sin. Hence the urgency of our task to make known the message of salvation through God's reconciling grace. And anyone who works for his daily bread and butter, who hasn't as his supreme objective the salvation of men and women, is not serving God as a minister of the gospel. Anyone who's bringing up children and not pointing them to the Savior by life and by life is not fulfilling the task of motherhood. Anyone who's on the mission field involved in total medical work and never says a word to men and women around him or her during the day concerning a saving Christ has lost their vision. Everything is secondary to making Christ known as Savior in his full salvation. This is the urgency of the task, the urgency of the call of God, the urgency of the need of man. And you can improve situations right through year after year, but as Jesus Christ said, the poor have ye always with you, and there'll never be a time when there isn't poverty, and there'll never be a time when there isn't squalor, and there'll never be a time when there aren't drugs, and there'll never be a time when there isn't a crime wave until men and women get saved. The urgency of the call of God, the urgency of the need of man. But thirdly, and to me, this is the most serious and sobering of all, the urgency of the day of grace. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. One of the most sobering truths which punctuates the whole of Revelation is that God's day of grace has a termination point. In one of his parables, the Lord Jesus warned his hearers that there was coming a moment when the door of salvation would be S-H-U-T, shut, shut. And in his descriptive teaching, the Lord Jesus Christ underlined in all his messages to his disciples and to the crowd beyond of the urgency of being in time. The Savior told of an hour of judgment which was to follow the day of grace. Concerning the day of grace, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. This represents, of course, the day of salvation. And thank God, any fellow or girl, man or woman in this place, hearing the voice of the Son of God and closing in with the offer of mercy can be saved, gloriously saved, now. That represents the day of salvation. But then he added in that same passage in John chapter 5, marvel not at this. Don't be surprised at this. 
Salvation is available. The day of grace is here. But marvel not at this. The hour cometh in the which they that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. That is the hour of judgment. The writers of the epistles echo the same warning again and again. Indeed, the Peter, the Peter epistle is right the way through. A warning on this great recurring theme. Listen to it. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, his promise of judgment, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Ward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In the light of such teaching, how relevant and urgent are the words, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We dare not, we cannot preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ without this sense of urgency concerning not only the call of God, the need of man, but the day of grace. And I want to say, and I want to say briefly, but I want to say pointedly, in an hour when universalism is being resurrected again in new forms, when the eternal hope of Dean Farrar is now being propagated in a new guise, and men are telling us that there is no punishment, that the world is finally all going to be reconciled. I want to tell you that the word of God teaches that there is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. There is eternal blessedness for those who receive Christ in a day of grace and eternal damnation for those who reject him in a day of grace. And there's coming a moment when the door will be shut. And that hasn't to wait until Jesus Christ comes back again. There are men and women, even in a day of grace, who can steal themselves to God until there is no hope. The door can be shut. There's an urgency, an urgency. But finally, in this introductory message to this entire passage, I want to conclude on what I'm calling the gravity of the task. The gravity of the task. Look at verses 3 and 4. We've looked at the dignity and the urgency. Here is the gravity of it giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Now the gravity of our task can only be matched by the dignity of it. And Paul wastes no time in making this pointedly clear. Indeed, he teaches in these verses before us that as servants of God, one, we are to protect the ministry, and secondly, we are to promote the ministry. And I cannot, if you're a housewife, a schoolboy, a teenager, a youth, whether you are a man in business or in the ministry or a missionary, we're all involved in this. There's a gravity of the task to which we are to address ourselves in these closing moments. First, we are to protect the ministry. Protect the ministry. Look at verse 3 again. Giving no offense in anything. In anything. Literally in anything. Why? That the ministry may not be blamed. Paul has already assured his readers, especially his critics, that his conscience was pure before God and before men. Chapter 5, verse 11. But here he states the same thing in a slightly different matter, manner. He states the same thing in a slightly different manner. He is concerned that in no way should he be a stumbling block to those who might be potential converts. Indeed, he's determined that no scoffer should find comfort in the fact that he has failed to measure up to his message. 
You remember after King David's great sin, Nathan the prophet said to him, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And I wonder how many people are going to be in hell. I wonder how many people are being put off the gospel in New York City this very day. Why? Because you're not preserving the ministry. Because through your life, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is being rejected and blasphemed and ridiculed. They're saying, oh, look at that man. Would you ever believe what he believes? This was Paul's danger, of course, and the danger of every minister. It must be added, however, that giving no offense does not necessarily mean hurting people's feelings. Let me repeat that. It does not necessarily mean hurting people's feelings, for it is quite impossible for any servant of Christ to behave himself so as never to hurt the feelings of others. And in case you might misunderstand what I mean by that, I am deliberately quoting from that great Bible expositor and saint, Dr. Harry Ironside, and this is what he says. Some people carry their feelings on their sleeves all the time. If you don't shake hands with them, you probably intend to slight them. If you do shake hands with them, you hurt them, forgetting they have rheumatism. If you stop to speak to them, you're interrupting them. If you do not speak to them, you're snubbing them. If you write them a letter, they're sure you want their money. If you do not, you're neglecting them. If you visit them, you're bothering them. If you don't, it shows that you have no interest in the flock. It is impossible to please everyone, but when the apostle says giving no offense, he means so behaving yourself that no one can point to you and say, that man's ways are such that I lose confidence in the salvation that he professes. And to me, that's solid understanding and insight, as well as exposition of this passage. Is there anything in my life that makes that man over there not want to be converted? Is there anything in your life that puts off that girl at the cantometer or the computer or the typewriter alongside of you says, I'll never trust Jesus Christ? Is there anything in your life, my friend, in that law firm, that medical center, that business house that makes your fellows stand back and say, well, you can have it, but I not? Your life doesn't bear witness to any change or to any reason for my accepting your Christ. We're to preserve the ministry. But not only preserve it, we are to promote it. We're to promote the ministry. Look again, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Underscore that word approving. In the Greek this reads, but in all things commending. Commending ourselves. Commending ourselves as the ministers of God. If protecting the ministry is the negative aspect of our responsibility, then promoting it is the positive aspect. In another place, Paul speaks of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Notice that word, adorning the doctrine of our God and Savior in all things, Titus 2.10. The verb to adorn in this verse is used of the arrangement of jewels in a manner to set off their beauty. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, the word is cosmeo, cosmeo. And it's the root from whence we get the word cosmetics, cosmetics. And just as we use cosmetics to groom ourselves and to enhance our appearance, so as a Christian minister, we are to adorn the doctrine of our God and of our Savior. 
We are to commend ourselves as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by so living and so carrying ourselves, we attract people to the Lord Jesus Christ in us by what we are. Further down in this very paragraph that we'll be dealing with next week, Paul, of course, amplifies this thought and details specific ways in which we're to show off the glories and excellencies and resources of our wonderful Redeemer. But the point the apostle is making is the seriousness of this business, the gravity of this business, that we can't live as we like. We don't fool about. We don't play church. We've got to live in such a way that every moment we live, we are adorning the doctrine of our Savior. We're not only protecting the ministry, we are promoting the ministry by our very lives. There is no place for lightness. There is no place for shoddiness. There is no place for irresponsibility. To be anything less than protectors and promoters of the ministry is to be a stumbling block and to cause the world to reject our message. There is a famous story told of St. Francis. One day, Francis said to one of his younger friars, let's go down to the village and preach to the people. So they went. They stopped to talk to this man and that. They begged a cross here and there. Then Francis stopped to play with the children and exchange greetings with the passers-by. Then they turned to go home. But father, said the novice, when do we preach? You said we go down to the village to preach. When do we preach? Preach, preach, smiled St. Francis. Every step we took, every word we spoke, every action we did was a sermon. We've preached. Let's go home. This is what Paul means by commending ourselves as the ministers of Christ. When people observe us, they should be aware of the dignity, the urgency, and the gravity of our task. Our lives and our words and our acts should adorn the doctrine of our God and our Savior. So I say to everyone in this audience this morning, what do people see in you as they watch your life each day? Do they see a witness true as you talk and work and play? Is the Christian life revealed by the things you say and do or is Jesus Christ concealed by discrepancies in you? As a servant of the cross, you must cease from sin and shame and regard all things but loss for the glory of his name. Only then, only then, only then will men believe in the gospel of God's Son and by simple faith receive all that Christ for them has won. What do people see in you? Is it the dignity, the urgency, and the gravity of the task? What do people see in you? Let us pray. One quiet moment in God's presence. If God has searched your heart as he has mine, if God has spoken to your spirit as indeed he has to mine in the message of this morning, then you'll do what I did before I came to this desk this morning. You'll drop on your knees. You'll bow your head right here and now. And you'll say, oh God, oh God, oh God, make me aware of the dignity, the urgency, and the gravity of my task as a fellow worker with thee, as a minister of God. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, enable me so to adore the doctrine 
that on one hand I shall preserve it, on the other promote it. And people will see Jesus Christ in me. Seal to our hearts, we pray thee, the truth of thy word, and grant that here this morning we shall rise to the challenge of the task of the ministry with gladness, with resolution, and with full surrender. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.